that actually happened. Like we went completely viral from the first hour. The first hour we hit our target. First hour, what was your target? I think we hit like 20K in an hour. Wow. Which was insane. Like that was by no means close to enough to build this company, but it was the greatest feeling in the world that there was thousands of people interested in this product. So the first night, next day, we woke up and we were at like 45K and I was like, wow, like I can't believe we're almost halfway to 100K, which is like the biggest number I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of. Does it matter how badly you've gone beaten this be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. What had started as a fun business idea between college friends had spiraled out of control. Saddled with international shipping costs, low student funds, and no way to market their product, Oliver and Rick hit a logistical wall before they fully began. Luckily, this wasn't the only idea these two 20-year-olds had in their pocket. Now, Oliver Moba is the young co-founder of Exter, the groundbreaking company behind the most successful smart wallet in the world. Generating $25 million in 2021 and nearly $40 million this year, Oliver's place on Forbes 30 Under 30 seems like a no-brainer. But before he was sewing together prototypes in Hong Kong or launching a Kickstarter campaign, Oliver cultivated his adventurous spirit in his unusual childhood. With his father's job sending the family around the globe every couple of years, Oliver's cosmopolitan outlook grew as he adapted to each new country he called home. So can you tell me a little bit about like the moves that you made in childhood, maybe some of the ones that are significant, maybe some stories of, of these different countries that you were bouncing around and why were you bouncing around in the first place? Definitely, yeah. So um, in my youth, I never lived in one country for more than five years. Uh, part of this was my dad's occupation, but also part of it was that our family loved experiencing new cultures. So every time my dad would come to my bed and tell me we were moving to the next place, I would be so extremely excited. And when I tried to explain this to my friends back home, they were like, how does that, how, how can you even enjoy that moving on from your friend groups every five years? But for some reason, there was this intrinsic need and, and want to, to get out there and, and see all these countries. So we moved from, from Amsterdam to Japan, to Milan, to Barcelona, to Hong Kong, Singapore. It was all over the place. Uh, and I did really feel that this helped me develop as a person over time. And if you look at our team right now, we have over 12 different nationalities and people live in over 10 different countries. So it's, it's definitely something that stuck with me and I, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I know. It definitely seems like something that stuck with you. And I'm very curious, like in each of those countries, I'm sure you had incredible experiences that allowed you to empathize with a, a group of people that maybe had a different culture than you, a different lifestyle. I was wondering in all these places that uh, you lived in, was there any culture that was most... Uh, uh, I guess like shocking, like 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 in in terms of culture shock, um, what was hardest to adapt to? It. I would say Japan was definitely the number one most shocking. Um, you know, through traveling through Europe, everything definitely has something similar, but if you land in Japan, everything's the opposite. 
literally the way you open the door is different. So it feels so strange to walk around there and see that er every sign on the street or every the way of crossing the streets are, is, is just a totally different experience. I mean, I was the only blonde kid at my entire school. I was actually at a Japanese school for the first three years in Tokyo. So I would go to school um, in a full Japanese kimono outfit with wooden shoes wow. often. Uh, Wait, wooden this was very, shoes? Yeah, this is a traditional shoe, uh, traditional school. So I went to one of those full Japanese schools in the, in the heart of Tokyo. And then I would enter the classroom and I, was, I would actually get lessons in Japanese uh, because this was the best school oh. at, at that time in, in Tokyo. And this was a while ago. So honestly, it was, it was an amazing experience. We had these, uh, the typical Japanese power nap that we would have in the afternoon at school. We would play Japanese games, board games. It was, and I was literally the only blonde kid at this whole school. You, we have these school photos and you just see this bleach blonde kid in the middle. Um, but it was also really exciting because if, when I walked over the street and you know, this was uh, over 20 years ago, I would get approached by people that just wanted to take photos because it wasn't that common back then that there was- Yeah, you look you know, so different. Yeah, so I remember this one time, um, my parents told me this story, but they were actually walking me over the streets of Tokyo and it's super busy. And we get approached by this scout guy from a band and he says, we need your kid's photo on the cover of our CD. So they literally took me to the studio that same day, put these huge headphones and goggles on my face and took a photo. And this was on a CD cover that was spread over millions of different CDs. So this was all over Tokyo. Which wow. Was insane. Do you own so, the album? Yes, I definitely have it. Yeah, I'll send over a photo. I can send yeah, that dude, to that you guys. Awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, this is like cool. such an odd experience. It's a cool one. Yeah, so I mean, in, in that sense, it felt um, I felt privileged to be in a different culture and people respecting that. Um, I've never really had any negative experiences in Japan, per se. They're all very polite over there. Yeah, no, it, it, it seems like like really o o overwhelmingly positive. Um, uh, I was wondering if we could talk about how you met Rick. Um, who would become a pretty important person um, in your life. Definitely. So Rick Svarnik is my co-founder. Uh, one of the two co-founders I have, the other guy is Richard Kahneman. So Rick uh, is my friend who I actually met, funnily enough, in the U.S. We are both um, enrolled in a Fulbright scholarship to study in the U.S. for one year. And we were practically the only two Dutch guys at this university in Pittsburgh. So very quickly, we found each other. And very quickly, we became very close and realized we had the same interests. Um, besides, obviously, being a freshman and doing all this typical freshman stuff, we were also very obsessed with businesses and with Kickstarter. So how did you guys start thinking about business ideas? What were some of the first business ideas that you and Rick came up with? Uh, we would scout delicacies from different countries and bring them to other countries that they would work well in. So, yeah, so we thought there's this Dutch fried delicacy called the croquette. If we import that to the U.S. and bring this to campuses, uh, that's go that's going to work. And we actually went went through with it. Really? So, wait, how, how did you develop that? What, what year is this now we're talking about? This is one year later. So, we 
brainstormed about this while we were in the US in 2011. A year later, 2012, we started really kind of exploring the idea and actually shipping boxes. Then a year later, we were actually joining this startup competition. It's a, it was like a pitching competition in Rotterdam. We thought, okay, if we can pitch this idea, we can win a prize, we can win an office space and get coaches and all that stuff. So we actually joined this pitching competition with this Delhi Scout idea. Uh, we showed them a video where we traveled to the U.S. to the campus and we were having people try this food and people loved it. Uh, and we had a production facility in the U.S. that could make it. So the whole proposition was going to work. And then we pitched and we got second place and we actually got a bunch of cool prizes that helped us get into the startup scene in the Netherlands. What did you get? We got an office space for in it, this startup tower with a bunch of other companies around us. And we got um, a certain amount of hours of coaching of these startup coaches. So you start Delhi Scout, but this is not the the company that you're doing now. So when did you start to run into uh, either trouble or or into a point where you wanted to pivot? So we realized uh, very quickly that we were both second year students in the Netherlands, still didn't have any funding didn't see food as something that was going to work for crowdfunding because with crowdfunding, you want to send people products and, you know, have them use it. But food is different. It's like a recurring product. So we realized that frozen foods traveling across the sea to the U.S. Uh, or having to build a factory in the U.S., there was just too many, too many loose screws in the whole uh, equation. And we realized that we were just not experienced enough to do this. Um, but did this did get us to start brainstorming other ideas, which led to the next thing. Was it hard to relinquish this idea? So to some degree, there was definitely some disappointment there because we did put a lot of time into it. We obviously invested in those flights to the US. We invested in ordering in bulk. Um, a lot of time, you know, that we could have been spending doing student stuff. Uh, we spent on this um, and back then I didn't really see the value of giving up and, you know, accepting that I learned a lot from it. I just thought I want to keep going. But I also realized that um, it just wasn't feasible and we were in the right place right then to continue with other stuff. Um, and we we didn't really have hard feelings together. I think we, we kind of both accepted it. We had a just a very clear talk about it, accepted it and decided to move on to other things. And we were both busy enough to know that the next thing was around the corner. So what did that next thing become? The next thing actually happened while I was living in Hong Kong. So right after this Telescout fiasco, I moved to Hong Kong for an internship in something that I am really bad at, which was finance. I was at a big commodity trading firm. I was in the treasury department as a treasury intern. Was it soul sucking? Yeah, completely. The cool, the only cool thing is that I got to go to my first job with a suit and a bag. I mean, after the first two months, I was like, what am I doing? You know, that that first week of feeling cool in your suit, that dies out yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> so I was in Hong Kong, and after, I think, a month of working at this treasury firm, I realized, okay, this is definitely not what I'm going to do with my life. And I also realized in Hong Kong that there's a lot of things that are different to Hong Kong and Europe and the U.S. So 
a lot of people were paying with their phones already in Hong Kong. And also in China, I traveled to Shenzhen and I realized everyone was doing everything with their phone. So wallets weren't even a thing there anymore. So I realized, okay, what, like there's definitely a step between the future of paying everything with your phone and where we're at, where we're at now in Europe. Uh, everyone's still carrying a dad wallet, a big, bi bulky bifold that doesn't even fit in your pocket. There has to be some kind of middle step. And so I, I talked to Rick and we started thinking about what, what if we make the next generation wallet? One that really is built for the future. One that's safe, efficient, uh, and not bulky. And that's when the whole research phase started. We looked into all the different crowdfunding platforms and all the different wallets that existed and realized that there was no next generation wallet out there on any crowdfunding platform. Wow. So like the, the, this is like a hole in the market. That, that's what it felt like. It really felt like, like a big opportunity. And uh, so we started researching what were the upcoming wallets and which features people actually appreciated about them. Started reading forums, Reddit, everything, uh, comments on Kickstarter. And that's when the drawing phase came. So we did all our competitive research. We started drawing out designs and just like emailing them over to each other, FaceTiming each other and literally going to the market in Hong Kong, buying leather and sewing stuff together. Uh, I still have some of those early samples, really funny to look at. Uh, and so from then, we knew that the next step was to start creating an official prototype and shoot content to create a Kickstarter campaign and go live. Okay, so you're testing everything, but the real test is, are people actually going to like it enough to purchase it on Kickstarter? So you make your video, what is the response on Kickstarter? So this, this campaign took at least a year to build because there were so many things that came in wow. between like the prototype as well. Like the prototype for the video was, was, wasn't even ready when we used it in the video was barely even working. So, uh, this whole process that went ahead of the Kickstarter campaign was, it felt like you're building an entire business, uh, right. but it was the three of us. It was Richard, Rick and I, and we bundled our powers and, and built it and, and went live with it. So the, probably the coolest feeling was right when we went live, we had all our family and friends from all those years of traveling across the globe. Uh, we had all of them share it, back it, and give that initial push. And that's the most important thing on Kickstarter is that the first hour uh, you hit your goal so that the algorithm really picks up the campaign and then you come to the most popular page where everyone yeah. can find your campaign. So that actually happened. Like we went completely viral from the first hour. The first hour we hit our target. First hour, what was your target? I think we were at like 15K and I think we hit like 20K in an hour. Wow. And then, which was insane. Like that was by no means close, close, like close to enough to build this company, but it was the greatest feeling in the world that there was thousands of people interested in this product. So we started scaling this thing. So the first night, next day we woke up and we were at like 45K and I was like, wow, like I can't even work. Can't believe we're almost halfway to 100K, which is like the biggest number I've ever seen in my life <laughs> back then. So that was after we woke up and then we, we realized, okay, this is, this is the thing, like this is going to grow. And, um, that's when we started working together with a bunch of agencies and doing all the performance marketing side of things to really scale this campaign and make it go viral. 
uh, a lot of work went into reaching out to to different media outlets. So we reached out to I think yeah, almost a thousand different PR outlets, wow. and, you know, magazines, all manual with our pitch of the idea and the ask if we if they would want to write about our idea. And it actually only took about three big outlets to cover us for it to go completely viral. So I believe Mashable, Engadget, and Discovery Channel covered it. And then everyone just started covering it after that. No way. So what did that do to the Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, that completely shot it up. I think that was right in the middle of the campaign, which is usually the dip where most campaigns slow down and they don't have as much traction because the kind of the urgency is gone. And right in the middle of that dip, we started noticing it picking up again. And we used all that traffic to retarget with Facebook ads, uh, you know, with performance marketing. And then it just completely took off. You can see like on the on the graph that there's an exponential curve that goes up at the end of the campaign. How much had you raised at that point? So I believe it was like one week until the end of the campaign. And we were at, 250k usd wow. wow so then the crazy part happened is when like this last week it just almost doubled so it went to 350k 360k i believe us wow. dollars in the last week which is insane it just orders just started flying in that's a lot of money that's yeah, a lot it's crazy Wait, so what are you thinking you want to do with that so we actually like when we make we were making our initial calculations, we thought like, we need about a hundred k to make this happen. But to be honest, like we could have never even imagined how many extra costs came around the corner. Um, you know, from shipping to duties to returns to all those things that you just don't really know about before starting a DTC brand. So when we realized, okay, we have a big bag of money, but like we need to be super careful with how we're going to spend this. The first thing we did is we we flew to China and we went straight to the factory to start producing this thing. Uh, and that's when the chaos started. We were just living in China and trying to get by and trying to get these products out of the production line. But the sampling process was, was dramatic. Dramatic in what way? We spent so many nights just pulling all-nighters trying to get this product to work and there was just a few things in, in this mechanism that were so hard to get right for the easy access for the wallet. And then we thought we were almost there and then we produced like, you know, a hundred and then we realized, okay, there's still something wrong. We had to go back to the drawing board and that just kept happening. How do you actually get these things shipped out? How do you actually get it from an idea on Kickstarter to an actual business that is making money? Yeah, that's... that's uh also a place and a department where a lot of things went wrong for us. So I think shipping was probably the biggest issue we had in the end after production. So right when your campaign is funded, you start being spammed by hundreds of different companies that want to work with you in some sort of way. So many of them are fulfillment companies. And some of these guys are just, you know, they're very small, but they act like they're very big. And uh, they try to get your business because they know you're not experienced. So we signed up to one of these 3PLs, third-party uh, logistics partners in Hong Kong. And we thought, okay, that'll be simple. We ship the products from 
China to Hong Kong, and then we drive them there, and then they ship it all over the world from there. Never really realizing that this partner, first of all, wasn't good enough, but second of all, was going to charge so much for all over the world. And we we did ask them for the pricing before, but did there, there were so many extra costs that came into play, you know, with duties and, and shipping and all that stuff. We just, we completely miscalculated that one and, and lost a lot of money on shipping. There's even like a big batch that went out twice to these people. So oh, there's, wow. there's a lot that went wrong there. Uh, definitely a lot that was learned as well. Um, but you work together with these partners, you send them Excel lists of your orders and then they ship it all out. But in that process, everything can go wrong. Yeah, it sounds like, like it did, but eventually you get back on track. Where do you think Exter is today? And what are your some of your proudest accomplishments? Today, we've actually grown to become, you know, one of the thought leaders in the space. We were um, one of the biggest wallet brands in the world. We are the biggest smart wallet brand out there. The, the only one that's ever integrated technology uh, into their products to make them better. And we're moving towards becoming a travel and carry brand that helps you move through life better. So where does that actually leave you in terms of, of the business? How many like wallets are you selling a year? Like where is the business financially now? So last year we we closed off at 25 million US. Wow. And this year we're um, we're nearing 40 million for the end of the year. That's our target. That's huge. All from a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, so we've we've sold a, sold a lot of wallets. There's definitely a lot of people out there with our, with our wallets. And when we came to the U.S. a few weeks ago, actually, we, we met a few people that just on the street that had our wallets just randomly, which was super cool That's to see. That's amazing. So looking at this like journey and like you know going back to the beginning, what do you think is the biggest learning lesson that you've gotten from this whole thing? I think what the the um, the approach we took with benchmarking what other people have done before and learning while doing is probably the best move we've ever made. So what I would definitely recommend people to do is look at the leaders in the market. Who are the best D2C brands out there? They've done this before. They've learned from their mistakes. They've hired the best in the business. Look at what they're doing and see if you can learn from that to uh, apply that to your own business. That's that's definitely one of the, the biggest learnings and one of the things that we always try to keep telling our people here at the, at, at the company as well. We're with almost 40 people now and they're spread across 10 different countries. So uh, I think it's, it's important to keep learning and keep looking at the best uh, out there. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee B. Cannon, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lee. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from 
Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mukawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Menno. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.